So greetings, folks. Uh, my name is Dr. Tawfiq Haddad. I'm the director of the Council for British Research in the Levant's Jerusalem uh, branch, known as the Kenyan Institute. Welcome today to uh, the first webinar of CBRL's first webinar of 2022. Happy New Year to everybody. Today we will be discussing um, a work by Professor Francis Hasso, uh, who has come out with a new book from Duke University Press called Buried in the Red Dirt, Race, Reproduction and Death in Modern Palestine. Uh, the, the book is publicly available on Cambridge's website uh, and hopefully the author, uh, Francis, will describe how you can access that later on in this uh, webinar. Uh, as everybody gets comfortable and gets ready for this uh, webinar, which we anticipate will run for about an hour, hour 15 minutes, I want to welcome you on behalf of the Council of British Research in the Levant. We are an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct, support and promote humanities and social science research on the Levant and the Levantine Middle East. We're part of the British Academy's uh, International Research Institutes for which we receive a grant to continue our operations, but we also receive donations from uh, other, other folks as well as uh, our members. So we uh, uh, recommend uh, and suggest folks take a look at our website to see more of what we do to help uh, contribute to uh, having our uh, uh, to supporting our work fundamentally. Um, so uh, that website is cbrl.ac.uk. Uh, we have a hundred year history in the region and we uh, uh, are today conducting this webinar from uh, London as well as Jerusalem, but we also have a branch office in Amman. Uh, Today, as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking about Buried in the Red Dirt, Race, Reproduction and Death in Modern Palestine by Professor Francis Hasso. Uh, professor Hasso is a uh, professor in the Program of Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies at Duke University. She is, uh, holds a secondary, a secondary appointments in the Department of Sociology and the Department of History and was a 2018-2019 fellow at the National Humanities Center. She's also the editor of Emerita of the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, and her scholarship focuses on gender and sexuality in the Arab world. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand off to Francis, who is located in Jerusalem right now, to introduce her book and tell us what she has done. So please take it away. Okay, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you, Tufi. And I also want to thank Sami and Maida, who are staff here in Sheikh Jarrah, and Sylvia in London. Um, I want to acknowledge before starting that I stand on the occupied lands of Palestine in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem. I'll be discussing my new book, which is available open access on the Creative Commons through Cambridge University Press. And that was made possible by a fellowship from Duke University Libraries. So my goal tonight is to give you a sense of the work that Buried in the Red Dirt does and to encourage you to download, read, and teach it. Um, so Buried in the Red Dirt is composed of seven solid chapters, um, and that means substantive chapters, each with its own focus and analytical direction, but ultimately serving to build and substantiate my arguments. And then there's an eighth uh, coda chapter that's briefer. So what I wanted to do is um, talk about the, you know, begin with chapter one and just give you a sense of what I do, give you little abstracts. So in chapter one, which is titled, We Are Far More Advanced, The Politics of Ill and Healthy Babies in Colonial Palestine, that chapter shows that lack of British investment in healthcare for Palestinians was systemic and endemic to the colonial ecology, segmented by nationality, religion, and race. Um, Palestinians disproportionately died very young of poverty, hunger, and disease during the 30 years of British colonial rule, a rate overdetermined by colonial austerity in healthcare and infrastructure provision and systemic extraction from the native population. In the same period, Zionist health and science institutions, mainly funded by investments 
from Western Jewish communities, improved Jewish infant, child, and maternal health in Palestine, guided by a racial demographic ideology and social medicine philosophy. Palestinian elites, in turn, recognized that healthcare and health status were crucial to the Zionist enterprise of transforming the demography of Palestine by populating it with healthy Jewish bodies and that this project was vitalized by investments and a colonial civilizational discourse. So I systematically do this in chapter one. Uh, in chapter two, um, the, that chapter is titled Making the Country Pay for Itself, Health, Hunger, and Midwives. And it shows how the British logic of efficiencies and economies or fiscal austerity, limited healthcare provision for Palestinians in the mandate period. Palestinian malnutrition and even starvation were widespread, predisposing them to illness and death, disproportionate illness and death. Despite acknowledging the structural production of hunger, poverty, and disease, British officials often culturally condemned Palestinians for ignorance, lack of maternal care, parental inefficiencies, and backward foodways. Rarely did British colonial authorities mention colonial extraction and austerity as causes of Palestinian poverty, hunger, or death. Even when they privately argued for more resources for Palestinians, they did so within a civilizational rhetorical frame. Not surprisingly, gendered racialized dynamics and material tensions were prominent in the archives as colonial authorities governed Palestinians serving infant welfare center nurses and midwives, but provided little money for healthcare. Many scribbled notes in the archives related to policing the boundaries of registered Palestinian midwives who dared to use specula to examine pregnant women, give injections to the ill, or independently set up shop. And I have so many uh, stories that I, I tell in each chapter about these issues. Um, chapter three is titled, Children are the Treasure and Property of the Nation. And the focus there is demography, eugenics, and mothercraft. And here I examine British and Zionist demographic anxieties and their eugenicist inflections in Mandate Palestine, which came from different places and had global um, precursors and diffractions. And British authorities frequently expressed concern with higher Palestinian birth rates, which they racialized from early in the occupation. These concerns were balanced by a rarely expressed calculus um, that recognized limited investment in Palestinian welfare and infant, child, and maternal health care would produce higher mortality rates. And thus, that would control the Palestinian population. The second section of the chapter explores Jewish and British eugenicist discourse that predates and overlaps with the mandate period and its iterations among Zionist health workers as they built a Jewish settler colonial homeland in Palestine. And the final section in that paragraph discusses transnational maternalist and breastfeeding campaigns which were motivated by class and racialized eugenicist concerns to reduce infant mortality um, and increase fertility among white, better off married women. And the conditions of the appearance of these discourses in Zionist archival records in Mandate Palestine. And again, I go with some texture, I tell a lot of uh, stories here, including about breasts and breast milk, uh, kind of amazing things uh, that I found. Um, chapter four, chapter four, I consider my uh, bridge chapter because uh, in, 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 two, in two ways, uh, it's historically a bridge chapter. Um, and, then it, and then also it starts to move us to after 1948. I would say the book is half uh, pre-1948 and then half uh, after 1948. So this chapter shifts the focus of the book to what the other shift 
is what I call non-reproductive desire. So it shifts the focus of the book to non-reproductive desire in Palestine by comparatively examining relevant legal genealogies and coexisting layers of law on birth control, especially abortion, using a sweeping historical approach. The purpose is to undermine simplistic reliance on quote unquote religion or quote unquote culture to explain birth control ideologies, practices and restrictions in historic and contemporary Palestine. This and the following chapters show that contraceptive use was licit and available and abortion, while often technically illegal, was always an important method of birth control for women in all communities. Most people made complex or simple anti-reproductive decisions best understood by accounting for personal situations and options, as well as material and structural conditions. The first section of the chapter offers a comparative overview of Muslim, Jewish, and Christian uh, religious legal traditions on contraception, abortion, and sex. The second examines late Ottoman laws, policies, and priorities as they interacted with birth control practices. And the third summarizes British law on birth control and mandate Palestine. And then the final section discusses Israeli, Jordanian, and Palestinian national authority, abortion laws and policies applicable since 1948. So chapter five um, is titled, I did not want children, uh, colon, birth control in discourse and practice. And it explores Palestinian Muslim and Christian as well as Jewish contraception and abortion practices during the British colonial period and since despite legal restrictions. It takes seriously the material and personal situations and dynamic um, cultural milieus that produce non-reproductive aspirations and desires and offered or did not offer sexual and reproductive agency. The first section in the chapter analyzes abortion prosecutions reported in the Hebrew language newspapers during the mandate period to illuminate public tensions and actual practices, including sex that crossed religious and ethnic boundaries, as well as regular interactions between Jews and non-Jews in legal and medical realms. The second section focuses on a failed application by a German Zionist sexology institute to the British censorship board to show a Swiss film advocating quote unquote medical abortion. It also examines Zionist pronatal dis pronatalist discourse for Jews during the mandate and the status of birth control for Jews in the colonial Yeshuv and early settler colonial Israel. I show the ongoing coexistence of Zionist pro-natalism with Jewish refusal in reproductive realms. The final section focuses on Palestinian infant and child death, contraception and abortion practices during the mandate period and since. And for that, given its non-archival uh, uh, nature, I, I, I used uh, I used oral histories, you know, some archives, but also 26 interviews I conducted with elder Palestinian women and additional informants, uh, women who had uh, uh, married and had children before 1948. Um, chapter six is the final, you know, big chapter. It's, and, and again, I do a lot of gear shifting conceptually and intellectually and empirically because I'm trying to ask, uh, to address some big questions. So chapter six is titled The Art of Death in Life and colon Palestinian Futurism and Reproduction After 1948. Uh, and that chapter proposes that demographic competition with Jews has been largely irrelevant to Palestinian reproductive desires and practices since 1948, a year during which they viscerally and universally recognized the importance to Zionism of the double action of Judaizing and de-Arabizing the land. The operations of Zionist demographic biopower and Palestinian resistance within Israel shift 
exist as pluralities in the same time and place and are never totalizing, as Michel Foucault would have guessed. Representing Palestinians as hyperbolically reproductive has had at least three consequences, I argue and show uh, in the book. First, it projects and magnifies onto Palestinians what are in fact Zionist and Western pathologies and anxieties reflected in the policies and priorities of their governments, knowledge industries and foundations motivated by geopolitical, ideological and material interests. Second, it misses the range of socioeconomic, psychic, and contextual factors that have shaped Palestinian reproductive and anti-reproductive desires and practices. Third, it distorts our ability to see the emphasis on creative, political, and social struggle and regeneration in the face of social and political death in the futurities articulated after 1948. Indeed, I found death to be re more relevant than reproduction in my analysis of Palestinian poetry, fiction, and film. The first section of the chapter critically engages with the field of demography and demographic scholarship to consider Palestinian fertility and the reproductive family after 1948. It shows that demographic competition with Jews did not, does not explain Palestinian fertility rates, irrespective of the Palestinian pronatalist nationalist discourse that developed in the 80s and 90s. The second section considers African-American, African, Black feminist, and Western queer scholarship on death, futurity, reproduction, and liberation to further illuminate my investigation of Palestinian life and death. Afrofuturist and Afro-pessimist debates and creative production offer insights on Palestinian creativity and biological and social struggle and survival as imperial, capitalist, and settler colonial powers continue to, to deliver erasure and death to all groups in the world they deem disposable. Queer inflected deliberations on optimism and pessimism, moreover, invited me to push harder against the seam of Palestinian anti-reproductive desire by considering forms of flourishing and belonging that do not require heteronormative reproductivity. The third section considers death and reproduction in Palestinian literature and film after 1948, focusing on iconic examples of poetry, film, and novels. Based on fine-grained readings, I maintain that this material is concerned with social rather than biological reproduction and transformation and is not oriented to an optimistic reproductive futurity. I end the section with Palestinian ge geographer Wala al-Qaisiyah's um, concept of decolonial queering, which aims for a politically and socially and sexually transformed Palestinian futurity. While not taking an anti-nationalist stance, she challenges the heteronormative reproduction of a Palestine that foregrounds heroic masculinity and disavows homosexuality, non-marital sexuality, and sex work, which are condemned as sources of collaboration with Israel and dishonor. This concept, she argues, provides room for gender and sexual performances that disidentify with the dominant gendered paradigms enshrined in Palestinian national thought and the queer assimilation requirements of Zionist LGBTQ frames. It challenges the nationalist silencing of queer and native feminists and insists on recognizing that the edifices of Israeli settler colonialism are themselves heteronormative structures and that, uh, that reproduced in Palestinian imagine, imaginings of liberation often. So a Palestinian decolonial queer futurity refuses liberation on the terms set by these systems of subjugation, she argues. So what I'd like to do now is I pulled out a, a, a few paragraphs from the introduction chapter, which itself is, is really like does a lot of work and I did not summarize it and there's no way I can and you can read it. So that chapter is titled um, 
historiography and history of missing Palestinian bodies. And what I do is I begin with a, a, a quote from Miriam Ghani, who is an Afghani filmmaker and a historian and a multimedia artist. And the quote is, past and future inhabit the present. History could be a hall of mirrors, a spiral maze, a door that swings back and forth on its hinges, unquote. She said that in an interview in 2012. Miriam Ghani makes this point, yes, in an interview about her filmic installation, A Brief History of Collapses, a two-screened floor-to-ceiling visual memoir produced from the perspectives of two iconic buildings, one in Kassel, Germany, and the second in Kabul, Afghanistan, for Documenta 13. Rather than being linear, she argues, um, time bends around the tale or the story's will. Buried in the red dirt shows, to use Ghani's word, words, how past and future inhabit the present in the paradoxical peripheralization and hyperbolization of Palestinian sexual and reproductive life. It makes the case that racism was central to the settler, colonial and colonial order, and to the distribution of health, life, and death in British Palestine. Following Ghani's approach to reconstructing the Afghan film archive, in 2016, I entered research on reproduction and quotidian death in Palestine, quote, slantwise, as if approaching a horse with an uncertain temper, unquote. The 1948 establishment of Israel as settler colonial state was radical in its psychic and material impact on Palestinians, most of whom were dispossessed um, and expelled. More than 150,000 were internally displaced within the borders of the new state. For Palestinian generations living under multiple jurisdictions, 1948, writes Dumani, Shara Dumani, is not a moment, but a process that continues. The events of 48 came to be understood, according to Jayusi, Lina Jayusi, as, quote, the foundational station in an unfolding and continuing saga of dispossession, negations, and erasure. I, in this book, avoid such cataclysmic historical turning points to tell a story about life and death and about missing bodies and experiences that exceeds authorized frames of collective pain and heroism. This often required what Ann Stoller calls the non-eventful quality of archival and other coeval sources and also I had to create new archives and I used my transnational reading practices and analyze a range of texts as anybody who looks at the book will see. So Buried in the Red Dirt highlights historical actors like British Zionist Arthur Felix who led an anti-typhoid serum experiment in Palestine U.S. Zionist nurse, nurse matron Bertha Landisman, who led Hadassah's infant and maternal health program in Palestine for decades, and British nurse, nurse matron uh, Vina Rogers, who supervised the nurse midwifery program in the Jerusalem district. It calls attention to ordinary colonial subjects, such as Palestinian nurse midwife Alice Butros, who unsuccessfully battled with British Department of Health officials as they refused to provide health care for a severely ill indigent child at the Jerusalem government hospital. Bahia Afifi al-Jabi, a Palestinian midwife who crossed colonial boundaries by internally examining pregnant women and giving ill women and children injections. Yonat Sadok, the Yemeni Jewish lover of Palestinian driver Adil Sha'on, who died in Jerusalem after she received a wanted abortion conducted by a German Jewish woman physician, and the many Palestinian women I interviewed whose embodied affective and analytical reflections are woven throughout to reorient our understanding of Palestinian reproduction, birth control, illness, and death in modern Palestine. Um, okay, can I do two more minutes? Um, 
Taufiq. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So I'm almost done. Um, Barry. A dominant motif foregrounds the racialized. Oops. The says my internet connection is unstable, but that's because it's windy outside. Um, hopefully it's okay. Um, a dominant motif foregrounds the racialized distribution of ill health and death in Palestine, attenuated by class and gendered sexual embodiments and positionalities. I show how ideologically and practically racism and eugenics shaped British colonialism and Zionist settler colonialism in Palestine in different ways, informing their health policies, investments, and discourses. Race is central to the plot in Buried in the Red Dirt in ways I cannot get into uh, given the limited time today. I take as axiomatic that racial projects articulate with sexuality given their concern with biological and social reproduction or in Michel Foucault's terms, biopolitics, who people have sex with or marry, who has babies and how many, who deserves citizenship, who is worthy of health and life, and who merits illness and premature death. White racial and population anxieties and discussions of race more generally were increasingly prominent at global conferences by the turn of the 20th century. Lake and Reynolds write that, quote, assertion of whiteness was born in apprehension of imminent loss, unquote, as colonized peoples continued to revolt. The racist dimensions of international politics were absolutely manifest and explicitly challenged during the many months of intensive meetings at the Versailles Peace Conference of 1919, at which was established the scaffolding of post-war colonial and imperial arrangements, including the British mandate over Palestine. White powers often describe the struggle for world domination as a race war in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. British imperialist imperialists distinguish between white and non-white peoples and assume the former should rule and the latter should be ruled. White supremacy and race consciousness inform national and international discussions about geopolitics, economics, birth and infant mortality rates, the nature of justice, and the social implications of contact between populations as Euro-American empires expanded and cross-continental migration became more feasible. These debates among intellectuals, scientists, journalists, professionals, and so on um, translated and, you know, it's shockingly uh, in shockingly similar ways to today uh, into immigration and citizenship policies, international labor regimes, and geopolitical conflicts. Um, although white racial supremacy was a global concern in the first 20 years of the 20th century and was absolutely relevant to Zionism and the workings of the Palestine Mandate, scholarship on the British and Zionist colonization of Palestine has rarely addressed these projects as racial and racist with specific specificities to be sure, but in alignment with other Western imperial and settler colonial projects. Irrespective of anti-Semitism and the historically situated and to some degree malleable nature of whiteness as a social construct, Zionist settler colonialism was understood by its advocates and their British and US allies to be a white socioeconomic development project. Racism and Mandate Palestine expressed itself in a variety of ways, um, including extraction from the native population, the biopolitical, the biopolitics of colonial categorizations and counting, and the systemic maldistribution of life, death, and well-being by investment priorities. Such maldistribution by priority is underplayed as a systemically racist dimension of settler colonialism and colonialism in Palestine. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank not you. Bad, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> you did very well. Yeah. Uh, you did very well in uh, uh, summing up what is a um, 
you know, I personally read the book and I would also like to recommend that our audience uh, download it and take a look themselves as well as teachers out there who might be interested in some of these topics because uh, I think uh, Professor Hasso actually uh, should be congratulated on a book that deals with a lot of subjects and topics in certain uh, with new approaches and uh, new subjects and new approaches towards the many questions in Palestine studies that actually are long in need of uh, new innovative approaches that uh, that the academy has offered but have not yet been applied to the Palestinian case study, I would argue. And I think the book is very successful in doing that. So the purpose of this discussion will be to try and uh, give you an opportunity to talk about some of your findings. Uh, and and give the audience a bit more uh, exposure to what that looked like, uh, unpacking many of those sort of dense quotations that you just read us, but which I think also in many senses give us the you know the the heart and soul of what this book is 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 getting at. So and and I would argue get at getting at effectively. So I'd actually like to start off by. Um, uh, asking you a little bit about your, your your motivations for this book, where they came from, and uh, why you selected this set of topics. It's not even one topic; it's many topics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I I um, I was thinking about death uh, when I started working on this project in. Um, uh, 20, early 2016, you know, January 2016. And uh, the question was, you know, how exactly uh, to deal with death? I wasn't really sure. Uh, this is my fourth book. And I had actually avoided Palestine for a number of years. I wrote a book on Egypt and the, um, the United Arab Emirates on marriage and sex. I wrote a book on, um, I co-edited a book on the Arab revolutions. I, was, I have a whole oeuvre of um, work on Egypt. And I think I just became you know, very depressed about working on Palestine and, uh, and, and, and feeling like, you know, what's the point of the intellectual work in a way. But I decided around 2014 that, okay, like uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And, I, I, um, and I wanted to come back to work on Palestine. I actually gave a talk on Cairo, uh, on Egypt, on what was going on in Egypt at Birzeit in 2014 at the Women's Studies uh, institutes, I think it was the 20th anniversary conference. So I was already like thinking about Palestine, even though I was talking about Egypt. So then there was a trigger where um, some feminist friends while I was in Palestine were talking about a, an article um, that had a stupid article that had just been published in foreign policy. It, 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 it shouldn't even be called an article. And I talk about it in my uh, paper is about like a woman in the West Bank who uh, couldn't get an abortion and, um, and that she was using, and, and the article talked a little bit about some of these drugs, uh, the morning after pill and other drugs that I talk about in the book. So then um, my brain, I started thinking about, well, I can't do anything. I can't, I, I don't know, like, what is this? And I started just thinking about abortion as death and what that would, um, what that meant, you know, in a nationalist context. And that's kind of the opening that I had. But then the other directions that I took are really as I got into uh, various um, archives and various sources, like it's really, uh, there was almost nothing on abortion in the British archives, but there was a lot about child death and that I had no idea that the average, um, the median age of death of Palestinians uh, during the mandate, almost the entire time was between two and three years old. That means half of Palestinians um, were like three years or younger who died during the British mandate. And, uh, and so that was a shocking number. And this is literally like what the British said. I found, I would find this. So I thought, okay, well, that's, um, that's also substantial. So it's not, um, 
Yeah, so Tufi, it's not like I actually had a clear plan. I just, and this is kind of how I work. I kind of have a basic concept, then I have an opening and then I start digging. And then it's not that I go where the data takes me, of course, like I have to do that, but I also have some theoretical and conceptual issues, readings, interests that are guiding. And that's what, um, yeah, it's like the book itself was my path. Sure. So uh, you, you mentioned that you have, you're informed by certain sets of readings uh, beyond the Palestine context. And it sort of brings us to a question of, uh, of the methodology that and methodologies that you use to uh, to deliver the book in the end, uh, and in particular, I would highlight you know the use of, of feminist theory or queer theory, or as you mentioned, also the Afro pessimism and futurist literature. Uh, these are typically th theoretical frameworks that have not necessarily been applied to Palestine. So, could you perhaps speak about what they contribute, uh, and particularly to this subject? I would probably argue too. So. Okay, so um, so I'll do like a methodological and then kind of a theoretical. Methodologically, I, I mean, I, I I hinted at a bit that um, uh, that some of the questions that I was interested in, I did not um, the, the 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 classical data wasn't there, and in fact, I spoke to a few. Am I still on? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, my screen. Um, I spoke to a few historians um, in in Palestine, and they said that because um, abortion is stigmatized, and then because it was illegal in the British period, that I would find very little. And in fact, I found very little. Um, and it's really talking with colleagues and uh, friends that I ended up, like Anita Vitulo, actually, who I mentioned in the book, uh, that I decided to interview elderly women. I also decided to go review uh, maybe five major oral history projects with Palestinians. And I talk about that in the book. Um, so, so I had to read things against their grain, but then also I'm not, um, well, apparently I am a historian, but, <laughs> but I don't really, um, this is my first uh, archival project and, uh, and I'm really multidisciplinarily trained. So this is really very new for me. And it will not be orthodox. Um, it is not orthodox, and anybody reading it will see what I'm doing. Although it has met uh, the tough standards of the external reviewers, uh, who um, who were wonderful. Um, so th then, in terms of um, theoretically, I guess I used um, what I teach. You know what I do. Like I use I trained in materialism, new so-called new materialism. I, um, I'm familiar, you know, Afro-pessimism and Afro-futurism are very interested in questions of reproduction. And actually I got that, um, that uh, inspiration from a draft that I gave at Brown early in the project where people kind of led me that way, you know, like to look at that, to consider it. Uh, and then uh, queer, again, uh, futurity, queer futurities, no futurities related to reproduction. So in, in my field, it was natural to sort of go in those directions to talk about death and reproduction. Um, and I hope I do it in a great way because I also do not want, this book is not about introducing the Middle East to those things um, because I think there's a lot to learn both ways. So I write a book that's really about both directions um, that is also designed to, you know, knock uh, kind of, Western academic assumptions, including queer and feminist out of their comfort zones. So I do want to 
make that point. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. Uh, thank, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, actually, following up on that last point, I mean, the, what I liked about the book is it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not classic archive work, and it's not just looking at what the policies or the in, internal transcript of what bureaucrats were doing, but it's going a step beyond and actually looking at the subjects of and the arguments and the, the debates and uh, the protests, the resistance also that sometimes exists in that historical record, but from the common peoples and the people who are affected by these policies. So in that sense, it comes off as a, a history of the margin a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. in the very dying sense, I would say. And uh, it's also a critique of historiography itself and including perhaps also, um, you know, Palestinian uh, historiography on, 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 on their own history. So perhaps you might wanna say something about, uh, about that. Yes, uh, you asked a few things. Um, so, so in one in one way, the book is very uh, similar to my other uh, books, and and that that one way is that I tend to look at multiple um, scales in, in a question. So I tend to think of politics with a capital P and politics with a small P, you know? Uh, and so, and that requires looking at multiple scales. I did that in my the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine book. I did that in the book on marriage and sex and Urfi uh, in Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I kind of thinking about it from the kind of embodied level, to what is going on at international, national levels, what is going on at the level of law. So in that way, that's what you're, um, you're, you're feeling or thinking or what you saw is that. Um, but I also feel like in this book, I, feel, I felt like more liberated uh, in the sense that maybe because I was already like um, doing history, but I am I a historian, apparently um, I am. And, uh, but I just decided to, because I'm an anti-positivist at some level, I, I mean, I believe the evidence is, evidence is very, very important. And I think I did a good job building an evidentiary case for the, um, for the claims that I make that are, less tentative. There are others where I keep questions open. Um, but uh, so I so I have like a bit of a post-structuralist uh, orientation. And that kind of liberated me maybe not in, you know, so to, to not be necessarily a classic historian. I really, uh, I did something that uh, though social science, I was trained in, which is the triangulation method where, you know, I, I, I would go to multiple sources, but then, but then I would tell a story and I tell a lot of stories and then I really analyze them um, using theory. And, that, and that's like the margins, all the margins, right? And uh, so that's one thing. And then in terms of the critique of historiography, yeah, so it's not, I use a lot of historiography. There's a lot of wonderful historiography. It informs all my work, but the question was, so, so part of it is pragmatic, right? You're writing a book, you know, you need to say something new, like what, what are you going to uh, do? And I'm actually trained in international relations, political science, and my entry into Palestine or what I know about the continent of Africa or East Asia or Latin America comes through like I have that geopolitical um, training, you know, and so, so, um, but a lot of the Palestine Israel work is through that the geopolitical lens, and that kind of means wars and big revolts and big events, and obviously, like the establishment of the mandate, which I talk about, um, the 1936-39 revolt, 1948, they're big. So, how do I? You know, how do I tell a story that kind of, yeah, 
deals with that, but then uh, goes beyond it. And, and that's what I really tried to, uh, to do. Um, even though I talk a lot about uh, 19, you know, I talk a lot about these moments in my way. So that's, that's what I would say, the historiography. The historiography is a kind of big men historiography, big meetings, big men, wars, big events. And, uh, and, and, but you know, there were little men, there were children, there were regular men, there were boys, there were, you know, there were women. And they weren't all, like they were mostly not people who were lettered and I, take that pretty seriously as well, which is hard because they don't leave documents, um, they don't leave documents behind. So, and you know, some of the nurses and uh, most of the midwives were unlettered. So, uh, so sometimes I got an inkling of who they were uh, because they would hire, um, they would show up in the archives because they would hire somebody outside of the courts or the British, the health office or whatever to write, you know, to put in words what they what their case was, what their problem was. And then a lot of, um, you know, later, like by the mid to late 30s, but even in the early 30s, there were a lot of lettered uh, Palestinian women like Alice Butros, and she writes in beautiful English, uh, her case. And, uh, and in the book, uh, just to give uh, people a taste, I lay out a story that really startled me um, early was uh, I saw a little note about, uh, what's her name, Vera, uh, no, Vina Rogers. Um, she's trying to get a doll, that she's trying to get a doll fixed in Jerusalem, a, like a, a demonstration doll. And she tells the head of the, um, public health department, the British uh, head, this is 33, I think, um, she tells him in this letter, like, you know, he tells her he can't get, get it fixed, you know, and then I have to go backwards in the record because all of these are scanned records to see who, why is this doll destroyed? So I essentially go through this, you know, this whole thing of why did a nurse destroy the face of this doll? And I don't have all the evidence, but I have a lot. And, um, and I sort of reconstruct the story of why Alice Botros, because also Alice wrote a lot, and there, some of that is in the archives. Uh, why did she destroy that doll? She destroyed that doll because a very, very, like an indigent, uh, Palestinian child, the mother of an indigent Palestinian child in Ramallah was trying to get really basic care at the Jerusalem government hospital for, for, for her daughter, Yasmin. And, um, and Yasmin, uh, I suspect dies. And, uh, and she's never able, she, I have at least two, if not three tries where the mother gets from Ramallah to Jerusalem and tries to get um, Yasmin care. And uh, it's pretty sad. And I'm, I'm able to tell a larger story, but also about Alice, about Yasmin, about Yasmin's mother, and about like engage with the entire healthcare system itself, which they never admitted Yasmin um, to the hospital because her mother needed to pay the third class rate uh, before they admitted the child to the hospital. So, yeah. Sure, I think that it's a good illustration of some of the kind of stories that you go through and the evidence that you use. Um, I wanna go back to some of the, uh, the sort of stronger contentions that or strong contentions that you come off with in this book, particularly the, what you mentioned, the, the situating the, the British colonial experience within a larger arc of, 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 of what you describe as white supremacy, as well as uh, mm -hmm. eugenics politics, which mm -hmm. uh, now this uh, contention will obviously is a, is a very large one and it's a powerful one. And mm -hmm. it's also one that's not typically used uh, with Palestine uh, in Palestine scholarship, so to speak, although you find it in one way or another on, on the activist scene, I would say politically, but it's mm -hmm. on the margins. But you're, you're, doing, you're going, doing historical work and trying to 
you know, trace an evidential record towards it and posit these ideas in, in, in policies themselves. So I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak more about that, where that contention, the evidence behind it, uh, and uh, uh, also how, how distinct maybe the Palestine case study is. Uh, yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, so, so um, I was talking about race and eugenics inside the book and then, um, I did a book manuscript workshop that was really wonderful, you know, really generative um, in April, 2020 and, uh, and um, at the Franklin Humanities Institute. And, uh, and what I, I got a little bit of a sense from maybe the British historical colonial field that the race part was like, you know, like I felt like I had to make a case on the race part for Palestine. So, so that led me down this entire new um, like train of thought, which was difficult to follow because it's COVID, um, interlibrary loan, um, lots of things as everybody, we all lived, um, we live, we all live in the same times and places. And uh, so basically in a few months, um, I, you know, kind of traced that. And I wrote an entirely new section on um, race in the intro chapter, which I read like a couple of paragraphs from. And what I really didn't know for all my training on the Balfour, the Peace Conference, the uh, all this stuff, is uh, how dramatically the global color line was in the air of the Paris Peace Conference, where the mandates were articulated. And you sort of know that, but the way we study the region we don't think about race, I think, per se. And what I, what I did is I, I, I traced it through a few figures. One is obviously Du Bois, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who came up with the concept of the color line and then the global color line. And what I did is I tracked Du Bois um, from like 1902, to actually, I track him to 1948, but in the, you know, I, you'll, you'll see in the book, but I definitely track him from 1902 to the 1919 Paris Peace Conference. He surprisingly showed up at many, many places. I mean, um, it's kind of amazing how much Du Bois wrote and where he went and where he traveled. And, um, so I talk about some of that and really, but I also discovered that, uh, that the Japanese had had a debate about, they had actually explicitly tried to include an anti-race discrimination clause, even though they were an empire and they had their own racial issues with people they colonized, like for example, uh, Koreans. Um, and, but the, Japanese people in Japan and Japanese people in places like the US West Coast just really wanted whatever this peace conference would come out, whatever came out, that there would be an anti-race discrimination clause which caught the imagination of others at the Paris Peace Conference. We don't have enough of a history of all the other people who showed up at the Paris Peace Conference. Like, I learned that Ho Chi Minh was a hotel worker in Paris at the time and submitted a, um, a petition for liberation from the French, which the English and, and uh, US, you know, dutifully ignored. Um, and, uh, and that Du Bois was there and that there was an Afro, I can't, I can't remember what it's called, but I, I write about it, that Af Afri there was a conference of African liberationists and it was like the fourth or fifth conference was in 1919 in Paris. And so, and then, you know, we kind of know this, but you can't forget it. Jan Smuts is who wrote the proposal for the mandates. And he was like 
a true racist. You know, he was a British Dutch war hero in South Africa, and he wrote the first draft of the Lee, you know, the for the mandates, okay, um, and it, for the League of Nations, you know, the meetings that would become the League for the League of Nations for the establishment of of the League of Nations, and uh, and so he, I mean, it's so explicit the racial dimensions, and. Um, yeah, so basically I wrote an entire new section on this question of race. Now on eugenics, I just don't see how you could ignore eugenics because, and I, I, I deal, I um, engage with uh, Nadia um, Abulhaj's, you know, not the first book, but the second book on, you know, kind of Jewish intellectual history. I mean, You'll see in the book, but eugenics is a very important dimension of the ways in which, um, you know, Zionist Jews who came to Palestine dealt with Jews, you know, and there are different strands of eugenics. There are, and I go into them. Um, oh God, there's so much I could go. I, this is how I became involved in like breastfeeding and breast milk. It turned out that most of the breastfeeding campaigns actually emerged from eugenicist concerns because women, um, better off women and like, women who, a variety of kinds of women were not breastfeeding their children. And that apparently um, was very important for infant mortality, like in those communities that was uh, non-breastfed non babies uh, were much more likely to die. So, so that was fascinating. And uh, the, the, so, so breastfeeding, feeding infants, infants dying. So I, trace milk, I end up finding it in the Palestinian archive and having to do mostly um, with Jewish communities. Um, and, and there are like environmental eugenics that are associated with public health, right? There's negative eugenics and quote unquote positive eugenics. So I'm sort of talking about positive eugenics, but you can see how racialized and classed it was. Um, and uh, yeah, and also sexual. And I talk a little bit about that because uh, there were some eugenicists who were active um, in the Jewish community in Palestine, like Matt Moen, I think, who I write about, you know, like he was anti-masturbation, he was anti-homosexuality. So there were, you know, eugenics was a really powerful um, frame of thinking. Thank you. Yes, uh, we're going to trans. Uh, we're going to head to the questions now from the audience members. So I would encourage those in the audience to put their questions in the question and answer button, not in the comment section. So I'm going to start with the first question that's popped up from an audience member named David Chappelle, who uh, might be the comedian but perhaps not. In any case, <laughs> he writes, I fully understand the systemic discrimination and attempted erasure both the Palestinians, both the Zionists and the British have inflicted on all Palestinians and women perhaps above all. However, Cuban obstetrician Alida Guevara talks about how important it has been for Cuban doctors to respect, utilize and learn from indigenous knowledge rather than impose Western medical methods that are often flawed as well as part of an establishment hierarchy. Does Francis consider these issues relevant to reproductive issues in Palestinian medical practices? Okay, it's almost like you skimmed parts of the book. Um, so I have um, section where a, a section completely devoted to this in the intro chapter, which as I said, has to do a lot of work is I really think about indigenous knowledges around health and healthcare. And I challenge a kind of bifurcation between allopathic you know, medicine and traditional medicine. And I have many stories throughout the book of ways in which um, 
you know, differences of opinion and ways in which regular people thought about these questions. I have like even maybe an entire other book that uh, I will write about how that has transformed or not transformed um, after 1948 based on, I did a lot of interviews with like traditional healers and traditional midwives and midwives who are more like modern trained and midwives of multiple generations and nurses, Palestinian nurses, some OBGYN doctors. Um, but yeah, and I'm a big fan of the Cuban, um, the post-revolutionary Cuban uh, medical system, which is truly amazing, uh, in term, in also in terms of the reproductive uh, health questions. But I, I also I talk a lot about women's, let's say, metaphysical um, understand other understandings and explanations of dealing with the body and the psyche. What I call in the book um, touch touch practices, touch healing practices. Um, the Qarina, I talk about the Qarina, this very important figure for Muslims and Palestinians, for some, for why they lose a baby, um, why, uh, yeah, why they miscarry, why, uh, but miscarriage is less, you know, it's, it's considered more normal, uh, but why babies died young. And, but also what they thought about doctors and when they went to doctors and when they went to traditional people and when they went to um, somebody to write a little, a Muslim or a Christian, uh, you know, they just did a whole range of things. And I talk about that using interviews, but also some really interesting uh, sources that I found in Arabic, including, um, Sharif Kanan is, uh, he's a Palestinian uh, ethnographer who's now uh, retired, hopefully still in El Bira. Um, and there's some, there's a wonderful text from the early 1980s on this question with like, that's a massive ethnography um, with six, he, he trained other people, uh, teachers, and they all went out and it's, it's on Palestinian kind of approaches to the body, to child rearing and to children. Thank you for alluding to that work. Uh, we're gonna go to the next question, which is from Gregor Matson, who thanks Professor Hasso for your talk and your work. And then he asked the following question, thinking about the proliferation and travels of Foucault's concept of biopower, how does the case of Palestine challenge previous uses or how does biopower of Palestinians add to the ways that academics typically use the concept? Yeah, hi Gregor. Gregor's my friend and former colleague. Um, so, so I do have a section on like, you know, Thanato, just think about death, the death dimensions of biopower the necro-political dimensions, which I um, do, you know, I write in, in this work and in other books about how Foucault always had like this, you know, this multiple dimensions of how he thought about biopower. So I actually, this book is, I mean, I know I mentioned Foucault twice, and I am a fan, um, but it's not necessarily like just a Foucauldian text, but I also, I deal with Akhil and Bembe. And I just think um, actually even with like Afro-pessimism and Afro-futurism, I mean, those whole questions of life, death, illness, who gets to die. I mean, we should all be thinking about this. Who deserves to live? Who deserves to die? who are thinking about Jasper Puar's work, who deserves to move through the world without barriers, without pain, um, without illness. Um, so I, I would say that's where I took biopower in those kinds of directions that are kind of more informed by settler colonial and colonial settings. Because, you know, Foucault, he had, you know, he does more on race than people give him credit for, um, but 
that's, yeah, that's not mainly what he does. So thanks, Gregor. Great, thank you. Uh, we have one more question in the question and answer. Also, I'd like to invite people if they have any more questions to throw them down there in the question and answer button. But for now, this will be the last question and we are running up against time. So we have time about six or seven more minutes. Uh, so this question comes from Mkhululi Mabusela. Excuse okay. me, I hope I got your name right. Uh, in thinking with Afro-pessimism, does Professor Hasso perhaps use the concept of social death? And if so, is it in the rigid sense of it as developed by Patterson involving natal alienation, or is it in a Fanonian sense where life for Palestinians is experienced as a permanent struggle against atmospheric death, an omnipresent death that, quote, tends to make life an incomplete death? So, so you probably know more than me in multiple areas. Mukulu, Mukulu, I hope I said your name right. Um, so I don't deal with Patterson. I actually deal with death. Not, you know, I mean, social death is pervasive, but um, but I would say Palestinians are anything but like chapter six is really about. It's the opposite of. There's an engagement with death, but it's about regeneration and it's about struggle. And, um, and in terms of Afro-pessimism, I don't have the book open because like also there's like electrical issues here. I'm in Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, and there's bad weather as well. Uh, so, um, so I don't have the document open, but you can actually do a search if you'd like in chapter six and just see that entire section. So I, I, you know, I deal with Hortense Spillers, I, uh, Jake, like uh, the Alondra Nelson, um, multiple authors to kind of think about life in conditions, life and survival and struggle and joy in conditions of, of, of death. Yes, like of erasure. So I would say I do that. And then I was gonna say one other, but I also try to think about that. I try to think about generational survival, not in reproductive terms necessarily. I definitely find that I, I am able to make that argument when I like jut against each other, kind of the Palestinian oeuvre against the kind of my pretty, it's pretty good, um, but, but not too long kind of summary of how I think about reproduction and death, how it matters in Afro-pessimism, Afro-futurism, and queer, uh, uh, queer pessimism, and then critiques of queer, you know, like uh, Jose, um, Jose Munoz, um, and also some feminist, you know, critiques of uh, feminist queer uh, critiques of uh, uh, queer anti-futurities. And uh, so I hope I answered, but, um, but you're able for free to go look at the chapter and I would love to engage with you further. Cool. Thank you, Francis, uh, for those answers to those questions, as well as to our audience members for the actual questions themselves. The book is Buried in the Red Dirt, Race, Reproduction, and Death in Modern Palestine by Professor Francis Hasso, professor in the Program of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University. You've been listening to a webinar uh, that has come to you from the Council for British Research in the Levant. Uh, it's part of our series of different webinars trying to highlight different academic engagements around the Levant. So please check out what we do and who we sponsor and the, the kinds of research we sponsor as well as uh, future potential webinars that we have coming up. Uh, you can find that information on our website, cbrl.ac.uk. Thank you for attending today's event and Thanks, have a everybody. good evening. And thank you, Francis, for your work thank and you. You too, Toby. everything today. <laughs> Thanks, thank you. Take care, folks. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye.